I'm glad to have <clears throat> Brenda Perez with me on the platform this morning. Brenda is one of our teenagers here. She is a sophomore at Bloomington High School South, and I learned just recently that she sponsors on her own a child through Compassion International. That just, that, that really did something for me. That really inspired me to know that one of our young ladies is doing this on her own. Now, our youth group is also doing this collectively for two or three young people, and I'm sure there are others that are doing the same thing, but uh, I want you to hear Brenda's story a little bit about it, and Brenda, thanks for taking time. She's been here all, all morning, so she's gotten the <laughs> set through it all. So bless her heart, she, uh, she deserves a pat on the back, a medal or something for all of that as well. Brenda, tell me how you came to the idea of supporting a child through Compassion International. I went to a Mercy Me concert about a year and a half ago, and Mercy Me has partnered with Compassion, so they promote it everywhere they go. Anyway, at this concert, they showed a video of a whole bunch of teenagers across the country sharing their story of how um, they decided to sponsor their child and how they come up with the money for it. Um, I was really encouraged by it, so I thought to myself, you know, if they could do it, then so could I. All right, how much does it cost if you want to support a child through Compassion International? You have the choice to do 45 a month or 38. I do the 38. All right, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, and, and, and I want to know, as a teenager, how you come up with these funds. I mean, I'm assuming you're not independently wealthy as a teenager. No. No, all right. Um, I work out part-time at my mom's daycare, and I also babysit whenever I get the chance. And any gift money I get, I will set some aside to send it for him. So gift money from family, um, part-time babysitting, and then working uh, at, the, at the daycare. Uh, and, and out of that, you take the $38 plus to send. Yeah. And, and what's the name of the child that you sponsor? His name is Eduardo. And Eduardo is from? El Salvador. El Salvador. And how old is Eduardo? He's eight. Eight years old. How often do you hear from him, or do you hear from him? I do, yeah. I will get three to four letters per year, depending on how quickly we'll respond to each other. Can you tell me how doing this has changed your own life? Um, it's made me notice the smallest things in my life, things that I don't or wouldn't pay attention to. It's made me realize how blessed I am to have the things I have. Um, it's definitely made me a more grateful person. And if you're going to tell the folks out here this morning some word of encouragement or some piece of advice based on what you've experienced, what would it be? If you're thinking about sponsoring a child, I would say pray about it and let God lead you as to what you should do. As a matter of fact, Christianity Today magazine published not too long ago an article on the 10 best ways to, to fight poverty in this world, and they said the number one long-term best way of fighting poverty is sponsoring a child. And uh, so this morning, we have uh, four tables set up out here. Uh, if you're interested in just learning more about how you could do this, there's a table for Compassion International. There's a, a, a table out there for uh, Agua Viva, uh, one of the missions that we support in Guatemala. Uh, there's a table out there uh, with children from India sponsored through Central India Christian Mission, who we also support. And then there is one for One Child Matters, which is in Swaziland, Africa. And so there's four choices out there. Uh, Brenda's going to be at the one with Compassion International. There's others that can answer questions and help you. It's just another opportunity for us to make a difference. Let me, let me pray with you. Father, we're grateful for what <clears throat> Brenda is doing and what so many of our 
teens are doing and for the encouragement and the inspiration they give to all of us by giving their lives wholly and completely to you. And, and Lord, I, I know that they do this not because they have to, but because they want to in service to your kingdom. Lord, help us all to be of the same heart and mind that you might be honored and glorified. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Brenda, thank you very much for taking time this morning to share your story. I appreciate it. Former president of Notre Dame, Theodore Hesburgh, wrote this several years ago. He said, you don't make decisions because they are easy. You don't make them because they are cheap. You don't make them because they are popular. You make them because they are right. When I look at our teenagers, I see them making decisions that aren't the easiest, but they're right decisions, and they're being blessed because they're making such good choices. What we do for the kingdom here, I believe, ought to be done out of a sense of gratitude. And when I look at our teens, I'm seeing that sense of gratitude to Christ that prompts them to do good things, make the right decision. Now, we've been studying the Israelites as they've come up out of the land of Egypt over the last few weeks as we've been talking about our own goals and dreams here to be unleashed. And when you look at the nation after they come up into the land of uh, the wilderness there, where they're, they're going to spend the next several years, it, the Bible is peppered with a range of emotions that we see, but very little of it appears to us on the surface as being gratitude or thanksgiving. The Israelites complained about the lack of food, so God provided them with manna from heaven every morning. They complained about not having any meat, and so God sent them quail. They complained that they ran out of water, and God gave them water for, from a rock. That God provided them with clothes that didn't wear out and with sandals that did not wear out. Everything they experienced, God provided for every need. And as we read, it appears they just weren't the most grateful people. But on at least one occasion, on, in one grand moment, the Israelites step up to the plate and hit a home run. They make the right choice, and what they did becomes an incredible challenge to us as we strive to meet our goals. Now, we're going to pick up the story with the Israelites at the base of the mountain <clears throat> called the Mountain of God, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. It's the place where Moses got the law. And we often think that Moses brought it down, they packed up, and they took off and headed for the promised land. But they actually spent about a whole year at the base of the mountain. And it's during this time that God is trying to prepare this group of people mentally, emotionally, socially, and most of all, spiritually, for this new chapter that would include the story of the land that God had promised to Abraham so many generations before. Now, you've got to remember, these, these are people who have just come out of Egypt as slaves. They've got to unlearn 400 years of misguided and misdirected spiritual wisdom. And so it takes a while for God to work in the hearts and the lives of the people. And in addition to God giving Moses the Ten Commandments and then the books of law, it's here at the mountain <clears throat> that God gives to Moses the instructions for the building of the tabernacle or what is sometimes simply called the tent of meeting. This structure that represented God's meeting place with the people, this structure that stood for worship and all that, was to be constructed of the finest materials available. 
gold, silver, bronze, and richly colored fabrics that could be woven into tapestries that would tell the story God wanted told. In chapter 35 of Exodus, the need is described, and the Bible says, and the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning. I love that picture. Here's the need, Israelites, and the Israelites began to dig in, and they dug deep, and they began to give, and they just did it morning after morning after morning. Now, why was, why was the tabernacle so important? Well, well, let me set the stage for it. Let me describe the tabernacle. You're going to see it in a picture here. The outer court was surrounded by a curtain, and inside that curtained area was what was to represent the world. And you'll see the first thing as they come in the entrance is the altar of sacrifice there. And so sacrifice took place in the world. And, and then up closer to the entrance to the tent itself was this big bronze basin. Uh, <clears throat> and that was where the priest washed before they entered into the tabernacle proper itself. I think that's a descriptive picture of baptism, this picture of cleansing or washing as we come into Christ. And then the priests, and only the priests, by the way, could enter into the tabernacle. But the tabernacle itself represents the church today. And you say, yeah, but all of us are in the church today. Yes, and we're all a part of the priesthood of all believers, just as Tobin was talking about a little bit ago in the offering meditation. This is open to all believers. There is no priesthood. We are all commissioned as intercessors, and we can come before God. And so it is a picture of the church. And once inside, there are three pieces of furniture. On, on the left-hand side is the candelabra, or sometimes called the menorah. There are seven candle stands and lamps on the top of them, and it represents God's Word as the light. It also represents Jesus Christ as the light of the world, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. In front, there was an altar of incense where the incense was burned, and the smoke that rose to the, to the top of the tent represents the prayers of the people that as they pray, the prayers ascend to the very throne of God. And over on the right-hand side was what was called the table of presence, and there were 12 unleavened loaves of bread, one loaf for every tribe of Israel on this table. And it represented God's presence among the people, the bread of life in their midst. And, and uh, at the end of the week, the, the priests would eat the bread as God's presence came in. And it's a marvelous picture today of God's presence in the church. And I think it's a big picture of the Lord's Supper where we commune with Him. Only there aren't 12 loaves, there, are, there is only one loaf, which represents the single body of Jesus Christ who gave himself as a sacrifice for us. Behind the curtain then was the Holy of Holies. It was a room that was 15 feet cubed, all right? And it represented heaven. There was only one piece of furniture in there. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. <clears throat> and once a year, only once a year, was one person allowed back into that room. It was the high priest. It was on what was called the Day of Atonement. Now, the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, spells out what happens on the Day of Atonement, and I would encourage you to read that in more detail. But, but just picture this now. Here you are. You're a part of the assembly of Israel. You're standing outside the tent of meeting. You can't see what's going on in there. Even some of the priests who are in the Holy of Holies, they can't see what's going on inside the Holy uh, of Holies place. They're all, they can only see in the Holy place. And, and, and the high priest on the bottom of his garment has these bells attached 
And so every time he takes a step or he walks, the robe swishes and the bells ring. And so he goes inside the curtain and what you could not see, you could hear and you knew that he was making the offering and the sacrifice that God would see as the appeasement of the, of the sins. And, and what I want you to know is that those sins weren't forgiven then. They were simply symbolically portrayed as in the sacrifice of Christ because when Jesus came, he's the one that took away the sins of the past, the present, and the future. But what a marvelous day this was. Now, there, there are two unique things that happened. There were two goats involved in this holy worship. And, and the first goat um, was simply a sacrificial goat uh, that was offered up. But let me, let me read to you verse 10. It says, But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. That word only appears four times in the Scriptures, and all four times it's in the 16th chapter of Leviticus. So the first goat is sacrificed. Its blood is what's taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. But it is this other goat where the high priest places his hands on the head and confesses all the sins of the people. And so this goat is led out into the wilderness far enough away that he'll never make his way back into the camp of the Israelites, carrying as far away as possible the blame and the guilt of their sin. What an incredible picture. Jesus is pictured in both of these sacrifices. As the sacrificial goat, his blood took the punishment of our sins. But as the scapegoat, he took the blame for our sins and carried it far away. Even the tabernacle itself points us to Christ. The altar, his sacrifice. The basin, we've been washed in his blood. The lamp, he is the light of the world. The bread of the presence, he is the bread of life who has shared his presence with us. The altar of incense, God hears our prayers when we pray in Jesus' name. The holy of holies, he is our great high priest who once and for all made atonement for our sin. But I don't want you to miss this picture. Wherever the tabernacle was set up in the wilderness, the tribes were to arrange themselves at God's description around the tabernacle. <clears throat> and the tribes were not all the same size, but the way they were arranged, this would have been the picture you would have seen had you been able to stand on the mountaintop and gaze down into the valley where the tabernacle was set up, or if you could peer over the edge of heaven, this is what you would have seen and you look at that picture and you see immediately a cross. And you know what that means, but they wouldn't have. Who do you think this picture is for? It is for us, folks. I mean, the Israelites didn't know what a cross was. Nobody was using a cross at that day and time as a means of punishment. They were, it was oblivious to them, but not to us. And God knew that we would understand this picture all these generations later because we would see that all through the scriptures he's been telling one single story of his love and his quest to redeem lost mankind. This is God's incredible story. The grace has been the theme of God's story from the beginning. So don't you think that kind of a story, that kind of a message, that kind of a hope demands the sincerest gratitude and our faithfulness? our top commitment, and our generosity. Well, if you ask me, that tabernacle business sounds incredibly extravagant for a bunch of freed slaves and nomads out in the desert. Well, if that's what you think, then you need to remember this. 
The tabernacle represents not only the presence of God among his people, it represents the whole concept of worship in heaven. God never wanted the Hebrew nation to forget that there is no one like him. He is extraordinary, the only God, and he deserves our best efforts, our strongest commitment, and selfless gifts. And in this case, the Israelites did it right. Morning after morning, they brought their gifts to build God's place. Then I want you to look in verse 6 and 7 of Exodus 36. Listen to this. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more, because what they already had was more than enough to do all of the work. Do you get that? Moses said, stop giving. We got more than enough. And the people said, oh, we wanted to give. If, 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 if that wasn't their attitude, it wouldn't say restrained. It would have said they stopped. Whew, oh, boy, dodged a bullet there. I can save this piece of gold. No, they were disappointed. Please, Moses, let us give. No, we got more than enough. They were restrained from their giving. I just can't imagine. I've never done that in ministry. Said, you can stop giving. Now, why would these people who complained about bread, meat, and water suddenly become so generous? Maybe, maybe we've done them a disservice. Maybe they weren't as negative as we often picture them. I mean, after all, their whole story is condensed into a few chapters here. We get the highs and the lows, and there's plenty of lows, but those lows may have been spread out over a period of time. After all, do you keep track of your negative comments every day? Do you, you have a journal of the negative things you say every day? Have, let me ask you this. Have any of you complained recently about the economy, political ads on TV, arthritis when a new weather pattern moves through the area, <clears throat> a math teacher who doesn't take time to explain how to find the answer, a favorite TV show that was <coughs> excuse me, preempted, the price of gasoline, the neighbor who will not mow his yard? Any of you complained about any of those? Yeah, <clears throat> we do it on a regular basis. I don't keep a journal of things like that because 500 years from now, I don't want somebody digging up that journal, reading it and saying, wow, was that Ellsworth guy a pessimist? Whew, I wouldn't have wanted him for a neighbor. Now see, we, we have the luxury of looking back on the Israelites and seeing their compressed biography. I don't think they were as negative as we often picture them to be. What prompted such generosity then? I think that they realized this. What they possessed had been a gift, and they gave it generously. Where, where did these slaves get such money? You ever ask yourself that question? How, where did they come up with this gold and stuff? Well, on the night of the last plague, the Egyptians wanted them out of there, and they were weary, and we find in Exodus chapter 12, verses 33 and following, it says, the Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. They have been through 10 horrendous plagues. <clears throat> Just get out. Leave now. Don't wait till sunlight. Just go. Before they said, for otherwise we're all going to die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders and kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed, disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. Now, these captives had absolutely nothing except their blood, sweat, and tears. For generations, they had slaved for the Egyptian pharaohs without any kind of compensation, 
But on their way out to freedom, God provided compensation through the plague-weary Egyptian people. The Hebrews knew these weren't their goods. These were, these were spoils of battle. I mean, can't you just see these Egyptians? An Israelite comes to the door and says, we're leaving. You got any gold, silver, or anything I can take with me? Yeah, yeah, just take anything you want. Get out of here. We don't ever want to see you again. And so they go out into the wilderness with all of these blessings. But they knew these were from God. God had provided. They were the recipients of His grace, His unmerited favor, everything they had, even their food, God had given them. They owed Him their thanks, and they understood, I believe, that giving back to Him was the right thing to do, that it made perfect sense. I am the recipient of God's amazing grace. I live in a great country. I have a wonderful family. I am privileged to serve with a great congregation. I have more than enough to eat every day of my life. And what I temporarily possess of this world's goods is all a gift from God. And I suspect most of us in this room could say the same thing. But here's the bottom line. Apart from God, I would have nothing. Not even breath itself. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in the book of Colossians, For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is not just the Creator, He is the Sustainer. He is the divine glue that holds everything together. And whatever I give is already His anyway. My gift is nothing compared to what He has done for me. Therefore, giving back to God is the right decision. It just makes sense. There is nothing in Scripture to indicate that the giving of the Hebrew people was anything less than joyful when they did it. It was not coerced. Theirs was an attitude of deepest thanksgiving, and they were not weary in doing it. As a matter of fact, they all came together to share the challenge. Everybody wanted to be a part of it, because when everyone does something, then everyone gets to celebrate the victory. Now, I, I want to illustrate that. <clears throat> I'm going to do it this way. Last Sunday, I asked you to bring with you a dollar bill or a dollar coin. Now, here's the challenge. If you are of a mind to give one dollar and put it in the acrylic boxes in the doorway on your way out this morning, this week, this week, we will use that money to do something special in this community for Jesus Christ. I want us to see that when we all pull together, we can accomplish a lot. I mean, there, a dollar bill is not worth much, but collectively together, we can accomplish something pretty special with that. Now, just put in a dollar, and you say, well, I, you know, I'll just slip in a five. Don't, don't put in a five or a 10 or a 20. Don't do that. And that's as close as I'll ever get to being able to do what Moses did with the people of Israel <laughs> in the wilderness, all right? Just a dollar. A dollar for everybody. If, if you've got kids, let them put their own dollars in. You may give them the dollar, but let them put it in. Let them participate. I guess if it's just you and your spouse, and all you've got is a $2 bill in your wallet, then go ahead and put the $2 bill in for you and your spouse. Now, if you said, well, I wasn't here last week. I didn't know. I don't have any change. All I've got is a 5 or a 10 or a 20. We have money changers out in the foyer this morning. <laughs> so you can change your 5 or your 10 or your... 20. 
And I know what everybody's asking. What are you going to do with my dollar? Well, that depends on how many dollars are shared. But will you trust me on this one? I promise you we will do something significant in this community through the kingdom of Christ. And if you can't trust the church with one dollar, how can you trust the Lord of the church with your life and eternity? And if the, if the Hebrew people had something so grand to celebrate in the tabernacle, think what we have to celebrate in the church. Now, you can find plenty to be critical of in the church, but I'm here to tell you this morning, I love the church. People in the church make the greatest difference in times of crisis. They are the most generous with benevolent giving, the most accepting of other people, and the most encouraging to those who are struggling. God did not create a sterile institution, a social club with membership dues, or a civic organization that wears unusual and funny hats. God created a living, breathing, relational organism. It was designed and created by God for us, built up through us, and destined to be lived out and shared among us. It is not exclusive. It is inclusive. Whosoever will may come. It serves a perfect Lord, but it isn't perfect. Its people are not perfect. If the church's people were perfect, none of us would feel welcome in our imperfection. It has the grandest purpose in the world to tell others about the eternal grace and forgiveness of God in Christ. It does what the United Nations cannot do. It makes believers from every nation and culture truly one. It does what legislation seems inadequate to do. It makes believers of every race and color equal together. Where else can you turn to find genuine forgiveness and acceptance? Where else can you find a greater reason for living and a greater reason for dying? Where else can you seek a greater hope than that of eternal life in the presence of God in a place called heaven? Don't tell me the church's best days are behind her. The church is vibrant and relevant I love the church with all of her blemishes, scars, wounds, warts, and failures because she is still the bride of Christ and he loves her with his very life and she is worthy of my best attitude and my best gifts. If the Israelites had something to celebrate, we have more. And it's not from us, it's all from him. Here's the other thing I think that guided their generosity, and that is where they were headed was far greater than where they had been or even where they were. They had been slaves, you know, and at the moment they were nomads, but where they were headed, well, where they were headed was home. They'd not been there yet, but it was home. God had promised Abraham, this is the place that will be yours. This is home, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, that was simply an expression that meant it's the best place that there is. I'm going to give you the best home ever. They had been unleashed from their slavery and counted it a joy and a privilege to give back because they knew where they were headed was home. Those of you who have been around for a few years <clears throat> know that I don't talk about giving often. I, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not always the most comfortable in that subject because I know that you're not comfortable with that subject. 
Um, I certainly don't talk about it in the same proportion that Jesus did. Jesus talked about it a lot because he knew one of the greatest barriers and stumbling blocks to our commitment to him was the things that we own and possess in this world. But, but have, you ever, have you ever stopped thinking, why are we uncomfortable with this subject in the church? Why do I sometimes come with a little bit of angst when I'm getting ready to preach about it? Why do you listen with such angst? Is it, is it perhaps... Is it perhaps because we have never identified really where home is? Suppose your house gets hit by a hailstorm, and your roof is damaged, and, uh, and you come to me, and you hand me the bill and say, hey, my roof got damaged in the hailstorm. Here's the bill. And, and, and before I say no, I'm going to laugh hysterically in your face. I'm not going to pay your bill to replace your roof. That's not my home. I'm going to invest my money in my home, where I live, where I call the place I live, where I've sunk my roots deep, or where I will sink my roots deep. I'm not going to invest in something that's not my home. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He could have said, for where your treasure is, you will consider that home. Where we choose to store our treasures usually depends on where we consider home to be. Is home here for you? I, I mean this world and all of its trappings. Is this world... This life where your roots go deep, if it is, if this is the only home you've got, then by all means invest every penny here. I just want you to understand what you're getting for your investment if this is home. When I was restoring my old car, I made more than one trip to more than one junkyard looking for parts that would fix those that were either broken or missing. And you can stand there and you can just see line after line of, of old cars rusting and rotting away. And, and, I, I, and, and you think, you know what? At one time, at one time, that car was somebody's pride and joy. It got washed every Saturday. It was garaged. It may have been the very first brand new car that person ever owned in his or her life. And now it's nothing but a pile of rust decaying into oblivion. And, and, and that's the problem with, with this world being home because everything in this world is decaying toward oblivion. Randy Alcorn writes this, he said, the treasures that children quarreled about, friendships were lost over, honesty was sacrificed for, and marriages broke up over, all end here. The junkyard. You see, this world is a world of decay. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. But that's what happens when you invest in a world of decay. John Jacob Astor said, I am the most miserable man on earth. He had great wealth. John D. Rockefeller said, I've made millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Henry Ford said, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. The happiest people I know are those who know where their true home is. Have you ever considered the irony that Jesus grew up as a carpenter's son, not a shepherd's son, not a priest's son, but a carpenter's son that just gives more credence to when he says, I'm building a home for you. 
That's what carpenters do. They build homes. Jesus said it this way, I go to prepare a place for you. I love what one lady wrote in her Bible. She said, Lord, as you prepare a place for me, prepare me for that place. Do you know where your home is? And are you preparing it now? Charles Fuller announced that on the following Sunday, he would preach on heaven. And that week, he got a, a letter from an elderly man in his congregation that read like this. I am interested in heaven because I have held a clear title to a bit of property there for over 55 years. I didn't buy it. It was given to me without money and without price, but the donor purchased it for me at tremendous sacrifice. I'm not holding it for speculation since the title is not transferable. It is not a vacant lot. For more than half a century, I've been sending materials out of which the greatest architect and builder of the universe has been building a home for me which will never need to be remodeled or repaired because it will suit me perfectly, individually, and it will never decay. Termites can never undermine its foundation for it rests on the rock of ages. I like that letter. There's a guy who knows where home is.